Well, good morning and uh, welcome once again to our worship service at FBC. So glad that you are with us. However you're tuning in, wherever you might be, uh, we're just glad that you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors at FBC. And uh, I just want to ask you to join me in a brief word of prayer as we just get ready and prepare our hearts to jump in to God's word. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we Uh, come to you with humble hearts, with open hearts, open hands, Lord, to say, uh, would you teach us? Would you uh, guide us? Uh, We're here to learn. We're here to grow. Would you um, show us who you are as we read your word? Holy Spirit, would you uh, convict us and challenge us and comfort us and just do all that you want to do in our hearts today? We give you this time and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City truly is uh, one of the jewels of the art world, most famous, of course, for its iconic ceiling. After spending about four years painting it, Michelangelo finished this masterpiece in 1512, and the chapel went into daily use. And the, the ceiling and the artwork in there is stunning. But in those days, uh, the only indoor light was from candles. And so as candles burned year after year, uh, the dust and soot began to rise to the ceiling and obscure the paintings. So after over 400 years of soot and grime and dust collecting on the ceiling, uh, the art needed to be restored. And so a team of restorative artists began a project on the Sistine Chapel ceiling from 1984 to 1999. And before this restoration process, many people in the art community would say, sure, Michelangelo was a genius in terms of his uh, composition, the structure, I mean, what he actually painted. After all, I mean, he thought about Adam's hand reaching out to the hand of God that was already reaching out for him. But many also widely believe that Michelangelo's uh, coloration, his color choices, were mediocre at best. The, the ceiling was too dark, too simple, sort of blah. So the artist's reputation once was legendary, but over the generations it was uh, blurred and grew dim. In a similar way, honestly, for many of us over the years or maybe just over the recent months, the soot and the grime and the dust of life has began to obscure our vision of God and our vision of His goodness. Maybe uh, to us, God's character begins to look a little blah or mediocre or even dark at times. And we start to wonder with all that we see around us, is God more of an enemy than he is an ally? This is the tension that we've been navigating in the book of Ruth for several weeks now. I invite you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 4 as we continue the story this morning. We were taking a look at these two widows who have lost everything, living nearly 3,000 years ago. They've been emptied out by life. Naomi especially has even been emptied out of her belief in the goodness of God. And she looks at the pain in her life all that she's lost and experienced, and she's having trouble reconciling that with her belief in a good 
Father in heaven who loves her. And again, maybe you can relate. If you've experienced loss or if you've experienced unfulfilled desires in your heart, unfulfilled desires about your family or about your future, if you've ever received bad news from your boss or bad news from your doctor, you can likewise start to wonder, is God for me? Is God really good? So a brief recap of where we've been in the book. Chapter 1, again, we meet Naomi, who because of a famine, she has to leave town. She goes to Moab and lives there with her family. But while she's there for 10 years, her husband dies, her sons die, and at the end of chapter 1, she returns uh, to Israel bitter, bitter, believing God is against her with nothing uh, in her life except her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, by her side. In chapter 2, Ruth says, hey, we've got to uh, find some food to survive. And so she goes out and just so happens to glean for grain in a field belonging to a distant relative of Naomi's. She wasn't aware of this at the time, but the man's name was Boaz, and he's incredibly kind to her. He's incredibly generous to her. And she goes home that day uh, with, with bags full of food. And we see that, you know what, God's maybe up to th- something in this story. Then chapter 3, Naomi says, you know what, we're going to step into this and see what God does. We're going to play matchmaker, and Ruth, we're going to find you a husband. We're going to secure our future. And so you're going to go under the cover of night and propose marriage to Boaz. It's going to be risky. It's going to be somewhat controversial, but it has the possibility of securing our future. And so Ruth in chapter 3, goes to the threshing floor. She proposes marriage, essentially, to Boaz. And he agrees, but there's just one problem. He says, you know what, there's actually uh, a family member who's uh, ahead of me, in line, closer to you, who has the opportunity to redeem you, to marry you, and buy uh, this property that Naomi is Selling. And so Boaz says, hey, before I can marry you, he at least has to have the opportunity to do this legally. And that's where we pick up in the story in chapter 4. Would you look at the text with me in chapter 4, verse 1? It says, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. And Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And so he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. What's going on here? They're at the town gate, which would be uh, the hub of activity for merchants, for business, for for legal activity to take place. It would be the natural spot to go and, and look for someone that you were trying to find. And so Boaz goes to the town Gate. He's agreed to marry Ruth, remember, the previous night, but there's this nearer relative who has the opportunity to do so first. And so Boaz finds this unnamed relative, and it's actually quite interesting that he remains anonymous in the story. We never find out who this man is or his name. He sort of just fades into the background. 
But this relative shows up there and Boaz explains to him the situation. Hey, Naomi, she's back from Moab, remember, and she's uh, giving up what little property she has. And the responsibility of the guardian redeemer is to, to buy this property and ensure that it stays in the family. See, for Jews, they believe that uh, the land was a gift from God. And so you were to do everything you possibly could to keep it in the family. And to our great disappointment, we see this anonymous, no-name relative say in verse 4, I will redeem it. He says, I'm in. Now, again, if we've been following along the story, we say in response to that, wait a second, no, we don't want that. We don't want you to redeem it. We, we don't want this sort of no-name fella to get together with Ruth and be the hero of the story. What we want, what we've been prepared for in the story is Ruth and Boaz. They're the match. They're the love story that we want to celebrate. Not this random no-name person. Thankfully, the story continues. Verse 5. Then Boaz says, Well, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Well, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, verse 7 for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off a sandal, gave it to the other. Just explaining this ancient custom here. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Okay, this, this scene is so good, you guys. Boaz here goes into to clever uh, lawyer mode, really. I, I love this so much. He's actually saying, you know, there's a bit more to the story, sir. Before this agreement is finalized, you should know, hey, you can buy the land from Naomi. That's part of it. But then uh, kind of a part of the deal is that you're obligated to, to marry Ruth and redeem this entire family situation. And you're going to have to, you know, take care of her kind of bitter mother-in-law, Naomi, and then you're going to have to provide for Naomi and Elimelech, which is her dead husband, by the way. You're going to have to provide uh, their family line with children through Ruth. And, and then you're going to have to invest in this land and essentially take care of it until Ruth's children are old enough and they'll take it uh, back from you. So, sound good? The guy's like, uh not so sure about all that. I mean, imagine the conversation that this man would have to have with his wife, you know, over the phone, honey. Honey, yeah, no. I, hey, yeah, I'm coming home. Hey, once you know I bought, bought some land today. Yeah, no, it's a good piece of land. It's a good piece of land. Great, great price. Yep. Um, but hey, uh, there's, it's a little bit complicated. Um, with the land comes um, a, a new wife from Moab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. No, I know. That's, that's what I said. Yeah. Yeah, I know. No, there's nothing I can really do, but it just, it's kind of a, a package deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, she's moving in later today. Yeah. New wife. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, I don't know if she's a vegetarian or not. Yeah. Also, okay, she also has kind of a grumpy mother-in-law named Naomi. Um, she's moving in too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah, when those kids get older, um, 
that I have with her, yeah, they're probably going to take our, our assets, and um, so our kids are going to be hindered. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, love you too. See you soon. Okay. That was a conversation that this man didn't really want to have. You can imagine why. So at first glance, for this anonymous relative, he thought, okay, Boaz, I'll, I'll buy the land you're talking about. I'll help Naomi out. That's a small cost. I'll take care of Naomi. And by the way, she's not going to have any more children. She's old. And so the inheritance uh, will stay with, with me and my kids that I already have, and I'll essentially enlarge my own estate. This is just a, an investment in his future, basically. But Boaz reminds him, in, in front of these elders at the town gate, of his actual legal responsibility, saying, you know what? With this transaction comes the responsibility to marry Ruth. And any kids that you have with Ruth will actually be heirs to not only this land, but possibly your other assets as well. And when this man realizes the cost, he backtracks faster than a man who asked his wife if he could go play golf on their anniversary. He's like, oh, never mind, forget I said anything, I'm, I'm out. I don't want any part of this deal. Boaz has the green light. Look at verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today, you're, you're witnesses. Everybody sees this, right? That I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So there it is, Boaz says, great, this anonymous relative is out of the way. We are going to seal the deal. I will marry Ruth, have her as my wife, and I will resume, or assume all responsibility for her well-being, for the well-being of our children that we have together, and for Naomi. You all are witnesses. Everyone has seen this. He's willing to pay the cost. And then they celebrate in verse 11 and 12, and the elders and the people pronounce a blessing upon this family. Now, think back with me to last week. Last week, we were struck by the loyal love of Ruth. It was bold. It was risky. It was sacrificial. Ruth essentially was foregoing her future, her vision of the future and family so that she could care for Naomi. And she was going to marry Boaz to secure Naomi's future. But now, in chapter 4, we are struck by the generosity and the love of Boaz. Why? Think about this. The random family member that we met earlier, he wouldn't marry Ruth. He wouldn't buy the land from Naomi. He wouldn't care for Naomi. Why? Because it was all too costly. He was interested in the deal so long as it benefited him. But Ruth 
and Naomi needed a redeemer who was willing to care for them even at great cost to himself. Someone who would say, you know what, this is going to cost me financially, this is going to cost me emotionally, this is going to cost me relationally, and even so, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to pay the price for your good. That's the kind of redeemer that Ruth and Naomi needed. And that's exactly the redeemer that they had in Boaz. Friends, it's remarkable, the love and generosity and kindness of Boaz. And there's two takeaways I really just just really briefly want to draw from the text. First, friends, this is the kind of love that Christians are called to. Not a love like this anonymous family member who said, you know what, I'll help out as long as it's not too inconvenient. I'll lend a hand as long as it doesn't hinder me personally too much. No, our love is to be like the love of Boaz, saying, I will pour myself out for the good of others. I will pour myself out for the good of my wife. I will pour myself out for the good of my kids and my neighbors. I will put others' needs above my own. That's the type of love that we're called to. Now, friends, this, this isn't easy. And just being honest with you, I am not always good at this. I am often selfish with my time. I'm often selfish with my resources. I'm often selfish with my comfort, wanting to be comfortable and not wanting to sacrifice it for the good of others. But friends, this is the sort of love that we are called to, to follow the example of Boaz. And so I want to encourage you to think about it. What is one way this week you can demonstrate costly, sacrificial love? Love to someone near you that is, frankly, inconvenient? The second takeaway from the love of Boaz we see here is that this is the sort of love that you and I most desperately needed. We needed a Redeemer who was willing to pay the cost for us. A Redeemer who wouldn't back out of the deal when the price became too high. See, sometimes we think we're pretty great. We're pretty lovely. I mean, why wouldn't God love us? Why wouldn't God do whatever it took to be back in relationship with us. But the reality is, as the scriptures show us, we, we're sinners and, and rebels who turned from God, disobeyed him, ran the opposite direction, and have caused all kind of havoc uh, in God's good world. And it, it wasn't cheap for God to forgive our sins. It wasn't cheap for God to restore us into a right relationship with him. It required the cross. It took Jesus' death for us. It was costly. And so friends, we celebrate the fact that God looked at the cost and he still willingly went to the cross for us because he loved us so much. So in the love of Boaz, we see uh, the love that we are called to and the love that we so desperately needed. We celebrate that gospel truth. The story here is not over, though. Look, there's more. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. 
And the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. Friends, notice where we have returned in the book. Sure, we've seen for a few chapters now the love story between Boaz and Ruth. It was fantastic. It was risky. It was bold. It was beautiful as a storybook ending. They get married. They have a child. They probably have a horse in there somewhere. They're off into the future with great joy. But let's not forget, again, where this all began. This whole story started with Naomi. The death of her husband, Elimelech, and the question that we started with, the bitterness in her heart, is God good? Is God against me or for me? Is God an ally or an enemy? Look what she said in chapter 1. Do you remember in chapter 1, verse 13? She says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. Or in verse 21 of chapter 1, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She said, God is against me. And look now here in chapter 4 at this incredible reversal. Chapter 1, the story began with, with death and loss. Now here in chapter 4, we have new life and in the birth of Naomi's grandson. Chapter 1, it was pretty dark and hopeless. Chapter 4, now the future is bright. In chapter 1, we have two childless widows. Now, chapter 4, a child has been born and they have a hope and a future. And look at what the women say. In chapter 4, verse 17, watching all this, the women living there said, Naomi has a son. It's interesting, right? Naomi has a son, not Ruth has a son. Not a child has been born to Ruth. A child has been born to Naomi. Naomi has a son. Why? Why does it say it that way? Again, it's to bring us back full circle to the problem in chapter 1 and to show us that what Naomi said, what Naomi felt, what Naomi thought about God in chapter 1 was not true. We've come full circle in the story so that we see God is not against Naomi. God is not an enemy of Naomi. God is Naomi's ally, and God has been working this whole time to restore her hope, to restore her future. Now this child, this this grandson, as it says, will, will care for her and her family in her old age, continuing on their family line and their family name. A son has been born to Naomi. There's one more thing we need to see in the text here, and it's not, not just a thing, not just, hey, some kind of side note. It's actually the thing we need to see. It's actually the, really the central theme and the heart of the book of Ruth. Look carefully at chapter 4, verse 
13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Now this verse is surprising. It's surprising. You say, surprising? Why would you say that, Pastor? This sort of thing is known to happen with a man and a woman. I mean, come on, Pastor. Surely you know how things work in that way. Fair enough. I say it's surprising because we may have failed to notice throughout this story that most likely Ruth has been barren. At least she seems to be, right? Back in chapter 1, verse 4, we're told what? That she was married to her husband previously for 10 years. 10 years and no children. That would be only one thing. She was barren, unable to conceive. But what does the text say here in chapter 4, verse 13? It says, the Lord enabled her to conceive. Think about it. There are only two places in the book of Ruth where God is said to directly act and intervene. Two places in the book. The first is in chapter 1, verse 16, excuse me, verse 6, where the Lord brings food to his people in the midst of famine. And the second is here in chapter 4, where God gives conception to Ruth. He enables her to conceive and have a child. So there's two times in the book, two statements where God is said to directly act and intervene. And what is he doing both times? He's giving life. He's restoring fullness. He's reversing famine. He's reversing barrenness. He's giving food. He's giving life. It shows us that when God acts, he gives life to those who have experienced its antithesis. This is what God does. He takes us from death and emptiness to life and fullness. And friends, that is a pattern that is repeated over and over again in Scripture, showing us the heart of this book, that God is for us. God is our ally, not our enemy. And I believe, friends, that this is why God wanted us to walk through the book of Ruth together these past several weeks, and we have one more week next week to, to wrap up, because some of us are feeling like Naomi in chapter one. Some of us, honestly, were feeling emptied out, maybe bitter towards God, maybe wondering if God is against us. And God wants to use this book and use this study just as a megaphone to our hearts to say, I'm for you. I am in this. I am with you. I am here. I'm not done with you. I'm working to restore you. I am your ally, friend. I am for you. God wants us to believe that that is true. You know, when we're, when we're younger, we're young people listening, maybe it's a little bit easier to embrace that truth. When we're younger, it's a little easier to be idealistic or hopeful about the future. But as the years go on and we experience disappointment and loss, and setbacks and pain just invade our story, 
the windshield of our life gets pretty chipped and pretty tough to see through sometimes. Think back with me to the Sistine Chapel that we started this morning thinking about after over 400 years of soot and grime and dust collecting on the ceiling, it had to be restored. And so again, this team of restorative artists in the 80s, starting in 1984, going to 1999, worked on the Sistine Chapel ceiling to restore its original beauty. And something spectacular happened. When these artists cleaned and restored the ceilings to their original state, everyone could see the beautiful, fresh, even spring-like colors that Michelangelo, the original artist, used. Pale pink and apple green and vivid yellow and sky blue against a background of warm and pearly gray See, when the maker's true brilliance and goodness was seen and revealed, the people had to change their assumptions about Michelangelo. Once they could see past the grime and the dust and the dirt that had kind of built up over the years and that was swiped away, they could see the artist's true brilliance, his goodness. Many of us need to have a similar experience with God where we allow God's word to restore and correct our our misunderstandings about God, our, our faulty assumptions about his character. We need to have an experience where the grime and the dust is sort of wiped away and we can see God for who he really is. And what does God's word tell us about God? He tells us in Psalm 118, verse 29, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So friends, God is good. God is good. This is the truth at the heart of the book of Ruth. Though we may doubt it, though we may question it, though we may feel at times that it isn't true. He is good, and he is at work to restore our hope, to reverse our emptiness, to give us life and fullness in a future. And friends, I just have to say, this this is not necessarily a guarantee of an easy life or a problem-free life. I know that not all of our stories will end particularly well, humanly speaking, even with Naomi, Our protagonist here in the book, she had to deal with loss, tremendous loss and grief and tragedy and we're never told why. Did you notice that as we've gone throughout the book? We're never told why these things happened to her. The book doesn't answer the question, why? And we might want to know, well, is it something that she did or something that someone else did? Was there some greater purpose or plan this all fit into? We're we're not told exactly why, even though we want to know. Because that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is that even when we can't figure out why, we can trust that God is with us. He promises us his presence. He promises to be working in clear ways and behind the scenes in the details of our lives for our good and for his purpose. 
glory. And friends, even if our temporary circumstances never quite turn around, we have the hope of eternal life in heaven with God and his people forever. And so in in response to this book, friends, I want to encourage us to trust that God is good. Even when we're in a storm, to believe that your story isn't over. God's not done with you. Just like he wasn't done with Ruth and Naomi, he was working to secure their future. And just one practical step we can take when the pain or the confusion of life begins to overwhelm us, we can stop and pray. Say, God, I don't understand this. God, help me trust you in the midst of this. Sometimes we need to change our rhythms so we stop ourselves from spiraling downward and instead can stop and pray. Famous pastor uh, Jonathan Edwards has said before that there, there's a difference, and I've maybe mentioned this before, there's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and actually tasting honey and sensing and experiencing its sweetness. The same is true with God. Sometimes we go to church and we, we learn about God. We know facts and head knowledge about God, but God invites us not just to know things about him, but to actually experience his goodness and experience his love. Uh, maybe for the first time, or maybe for you, it's been after kind of a dry spiritual season, he invites you again to experience and know and see his love for you, his grace, his goodness, his nearness to you. And that can begin with a simple prayer in response. And God, I look to you. I trust you. Help me know you more and believe that you are good and experience your grace in my life through the work of Jesus. Well, friends, our, our pain speaks loudly like Naomi in, in this room. Well, not in this room. If we were together, I would say in this room. In all these rooms, wherever we're watching, I know that... Uh, There's a lot of disappointment and unmet expectations, unfulfilled longings. There's pain. There's weariness and loss. Prayers that haven't been answered. Frustration. And in the midst of all of that, again, we wonder maybe why doesn't God give us the good things that we long for? Or why have these hard things come into our situation? And I don't know the answer. But I know that the answer is cannot be that God doesn't care. The answer cannot be that that God isn't good. And we can affirm as Christians that that is the case because we look to the cross. We look to the work of Jesus, that he stepped into our story, stepped into our pain and took suffering and pain upon himself And he died for you and for me. And so God is not aloof. God is not removed. God is not uninterested in our situation. No, he entered into our story. He cares. And while we were sinners, he died for us. And so we can forever look to the cross and say, you know what, I might not understand all the reasons in my certain circumstances, why things are happening, why certain things aren't happening, but I can look to the cross and I can know that God is for me, that God is good, that he's in this no matter what. And friends, communion is an opportunity to to tangibly remember those 
truths, to really hold in our hands the, the goodness of God. So we're about to celebrate communion now as a church family. Though we are scattered, we're going to take the elements, the bread and the cup, and remember what Jesus has done for us, that God in Christ is eternally for us. And so friends, now's the time to, to gather your, your cup and your, your bread element in your home wherever you are. I'm going to say a short prayer for us, and then we're going to take these elements to remember what God has done for us. And friends, this is a celebration for Christians, for anyone who's put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, to be obedient to him and remember what he has done. Would you join me in a word of prayer? God, we admit that there are many things that we do not know, many questions that we don't have the answers to. But Lord, we do know because your word tells us and you have shown us on the cross that you are good. And so Jesus, we remember you as our, our King, our Lord, and our Savior who died for us, that we might be forgiven of our sins and you rose again to new life, that we might have new life in you. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, here's the plan. We're going to sing one last song in worship and celebration of who God is. We'll have the after party on Zoom. The link will be down in the chat. So glad that you have been with us. And again, make sure to fill out that connection card so we can follow up with you on next steps in following Jesus. We'd love to connect further with you. So glad you've been here.